Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 189 of the Power Company podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am still here in Lander, Wyoming, where we have been hustling hard every single day. Lana and I have maybe been the most productive in the last week than we ever have. Um, just yesterday, a semi-truck pulled up in front of the house, luckily not when the elementary school across the street was letting out, and delivered all the rest of our boulder bags and crag kits, so those are in stock and are shipping right now. Check those out on the website at powercompanyclimbing.com essential-elements, and the fruits of that hustle will be coming very soon. We've got so many big things going on that I can't even, I don't even know where to start. So I'm not going to try and start. Instead, I'm going to tell you a little about today's guest, Mario Stanley. Mario and I first met in Columbia, Maryland at a coaching seminar. And we ran into each other at Waco Tanks at the Rock Rodeo, um, maybe a year later. And where I am normally a quiet, stoic observer, um, at least in general situations. Mario is more boisterous. Let me get in the middle of it. Uh, he's got a big voice and I appreciate his energy so fucking much. And I had talked with Mario online quite a bit, but last year in the wake of the George Floyd murder in May, Mario and I struck up a friendship and we've we've spent quite a bit of time forging that relationship. And in fact, we we met each other in Denver during the pandemic trying to be as responsible as we could to record a bunch of podcast interviews, some of which you have heard here, some of which you can hear at his podcast Sins and Suffers and we actually recorded that first conversation when we, I walked into the house, hugs, sat down, drank whiskey, and recorded this conversation, which one of us will likely, maybe both of us will put out on our podcasts, because honestly, it's not often we get to hear two adult men creating a friendship. Um, that sounds so fucked up to say, but it's true. It's, it's this strange dance that we do as men. And Mario and I come from two different backgrounds with, um, with a few things in common. And we, we bonded over the things in common plus the different backgrounds. And I think that's so important. Today, however, we're going to talk about coaching. Mario does a lot of work with youth climbers, particularly in a feeder team for 
Team Texas, which is one of the most storied climbing teams in the history of the U.S. And as someone who doesn't work as often with youth climbers, though a lot of you listeners do, I wanted to talk to Mario about what it is that goes into helping these kids get ready to be the best climbers that they can be. Let's get into it. What you do need to do is make rock climbing fun, obnoxiously stupid, silly, to the point where you don't even take yourself seriously fun. Do you think Texas is like gym hotbed because there's such limited cool weather and not a ton of outdoor climbing in the like big city hubs? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would definitely say indoor sports in general rule. Like like Dallas, DFW actually has quite a bit of indoor tennis courts, which I didn't know. Hmm. I mean, I knew we were a thing, but like I didn't know that they were like this abundant uh and so yes mainly because it is so hot like you keep like that's the thing like it like i don't even think like the lack of climbing destinations is really the issue because we have a couple of things like three hours driving you can get anywhere and i know that's like crazy for anybody else but honestly it's just it's so hot i mean it is like i want to say last year when we had the days of rain we then proceeded to have over 60 or 75 days of 100 degree weather plus wow yeah it's, yeah it's just it's just it's just miserable unless you're like willing to get an alpine start every day but no one wants to do that yeah at least i do how did you get started with with the feeder system you're in the the coaching situation that you're in how did all that come about? Uh, so I got started rock climbing. Well, okay, so let's back up. I My very first experience rock climbing was on a date. And mm. I just, a current girlfriend of mine, I was trying to plan something fun for us to do. We went rock climbing. She hated it. I liked it. Needless to say, she was no more. <laughs> and rock climbing stuck around. So that is why that is what got me into it as a sport and then honestly i kind of like did it a couple times i volunteered at a local gym called stoneworks which is still around to this day it's a green silo uh, the people who own and run that gym are super sweet people uh it is definitely known as the i like to call it the climatization gym because whatever temperature it is outside oh, is whatever yeah. gym it temperature it is in there because it's an old grain silo. Sure. So I started, back in the day, I started volunteering my time to work behind the desk for a free membership. And this okay. is when you could do that. So I How old were you then? Oh, man. So let's see. I'm 36 now. It's 2020. I moved to texas in 2000 the year of 2003 going into 2004 or 2004 going into 2005 i'm pretty sure it was 2003 so i want to say i was like 20 
maybe 20, just about to turn 21, mm-hmm. if my math is correct. Sorry, if, if anybody's listening to this, correct my math, but <laughs> I don't care. Uh, but um, I want to say I was like just, I was somewhere around the ages of like 19 to 20, 21 tops. Because I don't think I was drinking yet then, because it really didn't appeal to me, honestly. But uh, yeah, that's when I got started. And I was just, yeah, I was just a kid washing holds with muratic, with muratic acid. If anybody mm-hmm. remembers washing holds that mm-hmm. way, uh, I would be, I'd set a couple routes and that's when you had to take a rotary hammer drill up, drill a hole into the wall, drop the sink in, and then you could put the hold in or the hold was just a permanent fixture. And then we also had to drill in pockets and cracks along those walls. Uh, yeah, and that was my very first experience, which that's how I thought commercial rock climbing gyms are supposed to run. Thank God. They yeah. don't run like that anymore. Yeah, totally. But uh, yeah, that was my very first like introduction into climbing. And then from there, um, I, I took a little bit of a hiatus just because I left school on a personal note. And I was kind of like, uh, you know, I was like, I want to say I was like 22 at the time, 23. Uh, and I just didn't really know where I fit in in the world and what I wanted to do. And I think that's also because I wasn't really okay with what made me happy. Like I wasn't like, I, I just wasn't thinking about myself in the perspective of like what I needed to be to be happy. And that's like, and then when I went back to climbing, I finally like rediscovered climbing, like maybe like five, six months later, I was like, oh, this makes me really happy. And then, mm. so I just stuck with it from there. And then what were you focused on instead of uh, what makes you happy? Uh, uh, it, I was focused on honestly learning how to quiet the voices in the echo chamber. And I'll be honest with you, that's really what it was. It's kind of my own personal, like, you know, I don't want to say like, I mean, I'm not trying to say like mental illness per se, but like everyone goes through mental struggles. Sure. And that was a point in my life where I had absolutely no self-confidence and I just, I, I honestly had no idea what I was doing. I mean, mm. I was considering moving to Portland. I was considering moving to, you know, Seattle. I was thinking about moving to Canada. I was just like thinking about all this stuff because I realized I wanted to escape the situation that I was in. And I couldn't, and honestly, I didn't have a reason in my mind to escape the situation that I in. I was in because it wasn't really that bad. It just wasn't what I wanted. And I think what I needed... And what I end up learning how to do in that whole time frame is just calm my own inner turn, inner demons and just accept that like these feelings are normal. These feelings are real. I'm not the only one who have these feelings. I'm not the only one who has, you know, doubts, insecurities, just like, you know, feeling like you're a waste of space every once in a while. Like, I mean, yeah. like, like that happens, but I just, you know, I think when you're young, you think all of these thoughts are only happening to you and your brain. Totally. It's, it's very it seems very solitary, very mm-hmm. lonely. And I think a lot of us go through this phase where it's like the grass is greener in every direction. Like I'm standing on this path, this patch of scorched earth. It's, yeah. you know, nothing can grow here and everywhere else I look, it's better. Yeah. Um, Which is not really a, the case. Yeah. But it's a tough place to be in your head, mm-hmm. you know? And I went through a period of, and still struggle with, frankly, you know, the 
the way that a lot of men have been conditioned to feel like they have to be the provider. You have to be constantly mm-hmm. working. If you're, if you're not working 80 hours a week, you're not doing enough. You know, that mm-hmm. whole, that whole struggle is something I still have to battle and I don't give enough priority to the things that make me happy. You said a very uh, interesting statement of like what men are supposed to be. And I remember a comment that I started telling people, the people that I was really close with after coming out of that spell. And I remember it's like, as, as men, I feel like we're programmed to, you know, maybe, you know, and this might be like, you know, uh, historically meaning like, you know, all the way back to our green ancestors. But I feel like we're always supposed to think that we're supposed to slay a dragon yeah could defeat a giant win a war do something big and when you're not doing that and whatever you perceive that thing to be or that actions to be you go into the spiral and i think that was what i was struggling with like i felt like i was supposed to be doing something big and you know i just had the wrong b word i wasn't trying to be doing something big i was supposed to be building yeah and i think that's ultimately eventually when I built into enough to myself. And I honestly, I think that's where a lot of my like, like true, like kind of a, like effort attitude towards a certain amount of like, I don't know, debauchery or just whatever crap people give you. I just stopped caring. Yeah. A lot. And I think that was really powerful. So, but yeah, it, so that was that time. And then, um, and then I uh, got a job at whole earth. Also I got a job at the climbing gym worked at whole earth and that's it's just like a small version of rei oh okay. uh, so but they're a mom and pop version they're really cool they're actually uh, a little shout out to those guys because i work for them and they're really great but they also have they're known for having the best toy section hmm. of like real toys and children's books in all of all of uh dfw and when i was working that's on really sh- cool actually yeah and when i was working on ship i always used to read the children's book i used to get in so much trouble but i would just be there <laughs> reading these books for hours and people are like, we need help with shoes. And I'm just like, I'm almost done. I just got to figure out where the duck goes. <laughs> <laughs> what happens to the duck? I can't put the book down. Now. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was super fun. And uh, working in that store really gave me kind of like made me be silly again a little bit in that, at least in that department. And just like, I don't know. I just, it's the nicest thing I remember about that job. Why did, why did the store have that section? Like you don't I, really see outdoor stores that cater to children. I think, you know, I think this is much more like Whole Earth, you know, maybe not their flagship one in Austin, but like Whole Earth as a company has always been, I like to call them like the real mom and pop outdoor shop. And, you know, your real mom and pop outdoor shop is one of those things like in a, like the Whole Earth would probably do great in Laramie because, you know, what do you do? Oh, I, my child, I need to figure out a science experiment for my child. I would take parents over. Like, all right, we have this butterfly catching kit. We can talk about like, you know, then it teaches you like you can teach the kids about metamorphosis. You can do all this stuff, but it allows, it was really good at providing educational resources for the outdoors, but it also allowed parents to get toys, games, books, anything else that kind of helped break that barrier to get outdoors. And then they provided the normal things like clothing apparel for mostly adults. They did have things for kids, shoes, climbing gear, not much for climbing gear, uh, just because it wasn't as popular. They did a lot of packs. Uh, obviously, yeah, in Dallas, they sell a lot now. Um, and then I, when I worked there, I was like heavily pushing them to sell more. So. Yeah. Um, but I think that's like kind of it. Like it's a real genuine mom and pop. 
outdoor store and you know they might not have the grand selection that the big box has but it doesn't mean they can't get it but like if you are uh, have a family and you're looking for things to do and you really want to like keep your kids engaged uh i mean that's the place to go so yeah i, I want to come back to that eventually but you were like you're working at the climbing gym you're working at this outdoor store you're kind of jumping feet first whole wholeheartedly into the outdoor industry was that something you were involved in before you came to texas no no not at all i mean you know if we're going to shoot straight from the hip you know i i grew up in a town called manassas virginia right outside of dc um you know my school was called stonewall jackson i used to Mm. play in the battlefields of manassas uh uh, where where that battle happened uh and if you would have asked me when i was growing up and growing up as a kid i mean I always aspired to do great things, but I also had accepted the reality that like, you know, I might have some like mediocre management job somewhere, or I might be like a store manager somewhere. And then, you know, just trying to manage not having too many kids. Like I really like, like I just, and I know that might sound bad and I'm not trying to rip on anybody else's reality, but like I wanted more, but I also growing up, I accepted that like, it's it's okay for me just to like you know sell weed and work at a shitty store. Yeah, and which makes your patch of scorched earth that much more infuriating. Yeah, and I think that's the part of I think that also that concept that sorry that notion is also what I was wrestling with because even though I accepted that bad reality, it was still like comforting because I knew that like that was a reality. But then I had so much disdain towards it when I was going through that time. Like I just, I hated it so much. And yeah, I think it made me hate myself a little bit because I, I just didn't, I couldn't figure out mentally how to get past it until I did. And then, yeah. So why the outdoor industry? What about that drew you in? Uh, I'll be honest with you. People were just cool. And like, you know, and we kind of talked about on the level yesterday and I like what, um, you know, Montserrat and Bethany both said about being on the level. It's like, it's that I thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can look and you just, you look at someone and then you immediately bond and like they see you. But I think also another thing about like being on the level was like, you just can hold intelligent, com- te- intelligent discourse conversations. You can hold conversations with people and you can have that, like, I guess, mental sparring for the lack of a better term. Like, it's not a fight and we're not trying to debate, but. That was the first place I met adults and people my own age that were willing to have conversations outside of the spectrum of just what we did in Dallas. You know, what bar did you go to? What this? Oh, I'm into this music. I'm into this. You know, it was the first time someone was like, yeah, I did this hike. And it really reminded me of this experience that I had. I did this hike in Colorado. I'll, this customer, I forget what, I sold them a set. This is actually what I learned, choc- what Chacos were. But I sold them a set of Chacos. And they were telling me how these shoes work for a hike they did in Colorado. And it's they're going to u- do the same kind of hike in Spain. And I was like, why are you going to Spain to hike? And I think, and it was at that moment where they're like, well, I want to go to some museums. I want to go do this. And I... And then I'm also going to try and like take these classes. I'm thinking about going abroad. And it was just like, I knew what abroad was, but then it was at that moment I was like, oh, the outdoors and travel can lead you to meeting other people. Cause that's like the only other thing I had, like meeting new people, immersing myself in like their cultures. I yeah. learned a lot. But then once I started doing things outdoors, 
I realized I could be, I could do that and be self-sufficient. Like I could have, you know, house and home and kitchen on my back. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty liberating thought, even though I don't camp and hike a lot, it was still very liberating. Yeah. You know, recently I've been kind of questioning how I got so comfortable in this like complacent climbing industry that I'm, that I have been involved in that just feels safe, you know, it feels mm -hmm. very safe and uh, a lot of vanilla, yep. you know, a lot of very plain safety and, and while, you know, early on when I was standing in my patch of scorched earth, looking out and everything mm -hmm. was greener, it seemed very exciting. And, but it also provided this like, predictability because I knew that a lot of the people I encountered would all have the same sort of views and, mm -hmm. and, you know, interact with the world in a similar way. And then when you go to OR, you don't even have to walk in and you know, every white dude's going to be wearing a button up plaid short sleeve shirt, you know, yeah. it's just super predictable. And there's an element of that that feels really secure when you're, nervous about what you're going to find when you try to step into that greener grass and you're mm -hmm. trying to build something bigger where it feels like you're stacking up Jenga blocks that mm -hmm. might topple over, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. And it's just an, an element of the outdoor industry. I'd never really thought of how predictable people are. Yeah. I mean, it's safety. I mean, your feeling I think is correct. It's like safety in numbers. It's like, you know, the one gazelle that goes outside of the pack and sees some nice green grass gets eaten by the lion. So mm -hmm. like, I definitely understand that feeling. Um, you know, and I, you know, and obviously that it wasn't the same for me. However, you know, I do have to take my attitude into like, like, and I, and I know I bring this up, but I also think it's a really big blessing because it had just allowed me to kind of be a bull and just go for it. You know, you talk about going to OR and for me, you know, it was very much that same experience. Like, okay, everybody dresses pretty much the same. Everybody has the same kind of look. Everybody has the same kind of vibe, the same kind of talk. And then my first thought to myself was like, okay, so let's, let's, let's go back to high school here. So everybody that I'm looking at is everyone who wear, is wearing a Letterman jacket. So where are the kids that hang out at the back end near the, like near the water fountain? Right. And that's the first thing I started looking for. Yeah. Cause I saw that and I was like, you know, and me personally, I'm like, okay, I can navigate this space. That's fine. I've been navigating white spaces my whole life. Like navigating this space will not, it's not going to be as challenging as long as I can, you know, find an ally and someone to help me. And my buddy uh, Moss, also known as Gallo, uh, was the person who kind of really plugged me in. He's actually the person who introduced me to Beyond Clothing, my sponsors. And if it wasn't for him, I would have never met these guys. So he, like, mm. he plugged me in. And he's actually the person who got me into OR my very first time. Like He was like, yeah, I'll get you a badge. I'll help you out. I'll let you do your thing. And he kind of gave me like the full lowdown of like when you're navigating, these are the places you want to go. This is where you get your free food. This is how you get free swag. This is how you do this. And then he gave me some very important advice. He's like, and when you find someone you want to network with, he was like, you know, he was like text message them and email them immediately, like right in the middle of the conversation. Like, don't wait. Um, because he's like, because at the end of the day, he's like, they're going to forget you. You're yeah. a small fry. Like you don't matter. So you have to figure out how to make yourself stand out 
Uh, you know, and he was like, get as many contacts as you can. Like some people will tell you to just get like, you know, three, but get as many as you can and then just take what, you know, and take what you can that like whoever bites back, you know, go for it. And it was with that advice that I spent a lot more time like really hunting around. That's how I ended up meeting James, um, from with the joy project. Yep. James Uh, Mills. Uh, and then I ended up meeting my buddy, Darren. Uh, who is a, he worked for, I think he still does work for Polartec. And he was, one, he's the only brother I've ever met in the textiles industry. Mm. And he said recently he had met another one. So we were super excited talking about that. <laughs> uh, you know, and then um, shortly thereafter, uh, a few hours later, Bethany started coming into the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, kind of talking in that world, like, there were such few people that I met. Um, you know, I think Heather Larson is the person that I reconnected with. I actually knew her from, she's a big slackliner. I knew her from her days in Dallas. And, but it was funny. It was like the athletes and people of color. And when I say this, I don't want to sound offensive in any way, shape or form, but I think this is just the nature of the business. You have A-list celebrities, you have B-list celebrities, you have A-list climbers, and athletes and you have your b-list climbers Mm -hmm. and i felt like i connected both it it connected best with people who were fall in that b and c category Mm -hmm. because you know your a-list people those are it doesn't matter what sport they do every brand wants a piece of them so you know and so once i kind of started networking with people like that that started making or seem a little bit more real and tangible because if it would have been if I would have just had to bro out with category A, uh, you know, or sorry, yeah, like there's just the jocks, they would have never happened. Yeah. Like it just it wasn't just it just wasn't as fun. And, you know, as you're talking about, like, you know, you 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 have like mindedness, you have, you understand that. I had no clue what half of them were talking about. And I know they were right. talking about climbing and know that that, but the way they would approach it or their experiences, you know, it made sense. Just because it makes sense didn't mean it related to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I could respect it for what it was. And I had those conversations, but it's on the flip side of it, it was like, okay. So how do you go from like getting involved in this outdoor industry where you're, you know, you're seeing the possibilities of that to now I'm working with youth teams. How does that transition happen? And not even a transition, it's just another thing because you're Mm -hmm. still working in the outdoors through your guiding company. Yeah, so it's funny. I look at it, it, so I have to look at it as like it's all underneath the same hat no matter what. Like if it's rock climbing related, whether it's indoor or outdoors, it's all underneath the same hat. So coaching, you know, let's like kind of jumping backwards in time here. Coaching actually happened because I quit my job at a uh, whole earth provision. I wasn't working there anymore. I full-time working at the gym. I borrowed my buddy Kenzie's car. I got into a small fender bender. Mm-hmm. I couldn't afford to pay him back. So I just told him like, Hey, I will work for you in kids club. And then I'll work a couple shifts where, you know, uh, that you can just have the day off and I'll just, you know, do the extra work, you know? And so, and that was a commission based job. So I basically worked extra to pay off his car and then our kids club program is basically ages like youngest at that time it was kind of looser, but realistically youngest five oldest I had is up to 11. 
and kids were just rad. They were like really mm-hmm. fun to work with. And when I finally paid off what he owed me, or what I, sorry, what I owed him, um, he was just like, Hey, I don't even want to do this job anymore. Do you want to just keep on coaching? And it's like yours. Like you make all the money that comes with it. You make everything you see your program. You do whatever you want to do. And I was like, at first I just didn't have another job and I needed money. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, sure. Then I was like, this is kind of fun. Um, and then it honestly wasn't until I started getting into the program, running the numbers, growing the program. I was like, Oh, I can make a living doing this. Mm. And I was, and you know, and that's when I was like, I can make a full time living being a coach. If I'm like, if I'm strategic about this, like yeah. if I make a plan on like how to like diversify the program, create levels, you know, any, as any business owner does, mm-hmm. you know, you want to figure out how to maximize your services that you provide. Uh, yeah. And so that was the moment that I realized that I wanted to be a coach and I just have kept doing it ever since. And then, you know, you're talking about the outdoor industry as OR and going to a coach, like they're symbiotic, but they're also, I think they're on two very different paths. Yeah. And I think these paths like they have intersections throughout my life, but for the most part, there are two very different paths. Yeah. And that was at stone. That was, that was actually at Dallas rocks. Dallas Rocks. Dallas okay. Rocks before Summit bought the gym because Summit okay. was based in Grapevine. Gotcha. And then uh, I think in 2007, Summit slowly started to acquire all the gyms in the DFW area that were interested in selling. And at the time when Summit is is buying up these gyms, Team Texas was already kind of a, a Oh, force. they were already a force. Yeah, they were already yeah. a phenomenon. And something that I've always admired watching Team Texas from afar, um, partly because I pay attention to mm-hmm. what's going on in the climbing world, partly because I was a climber in the red, mm-hmm. and partly because I was emceeing for like divisionals and regionals, things like that. And yep. at the time, Team Texas was in the same region as o- or in the same division as Ohio. It was the Heartland, I think is what it was yeah. called. The Heartland District, which was massive. It was huge. So they was would like the travel. Center of the state. Yeah, they <laughs> would travel to Cincinnati to compete. <laughs> yeah. And so I would emcee these things for Team Texas when like Future was competing and Oh yeah. I um, forgot about Future. I you know, seen there him were there were just all these these kids who were crushers monster team Texas. Yeah. And something I've always admired is that I knew they would go do these big outdoor trips as a team, short trip and long trip. Yep. Yeah. Every year. And, and even though they were this, this indoor climbing powerhouse, they were still taking the kids outside Mm -hmm. and, and teaching them how to be outside. Mm hmm. Did you get involved? Like, did you stick with it? Hoping to join in with that? Did you stick with it just because it was a job at the time? What, uh, when Summit was coming in and taking over, how did that so feel that, to you? So, uh, honestly, you know, and there was the current management system that existed in Dallas Rocks was just unsustainable. Like, it's just like what you know, with, with great respect to the people that were involved and there were some really good players involved in that whole process and that whole thing. But ultimately with the management process that was 
at Dallas Rocks, that gym was doomed to fail. I think a lot of early gyms were. You yeah, know, they were. yeah. I mean, it's just they, they, you know, like they, they were climbers, not businessmen. Yeah. Or they were yeah. climbers that were unwilling to become businessmen. Right. Because they still wanted, you know, I, I think I said this on literally every single podcast I've ever been on, especially my own and yours. Like, rock climbing is an ego-based sport, and they totally. could not separate themselves from having to just do the job. And I'm, I cannot remember what his name is, but I met a coach one time from Israel. Um, and this was maybe like 10 years ago, maybe 11, uh, or more, but he was in the gym and he was just there and he was kind of climbing and coaching and, but he was also working with an athlete that he had that was there. They were just in town for whatever reason. Um, and it was talking to him. I was like, yeah, I run the, he's like, yeah, I run the team, the main team in Israel. Um, and I wish I remember his name, but this was so long ago, but he said a statement to me that I'll, I'll never forget. And he was like, yeah, it was like three of us or four of us that really opened up the climbing gyms there. And it just came to the grand conclusion that one of us has to quit climbing and become an adult. Mm -hmm. And one of us has to quit climbing and run the gym and be yeah. a business person. He's like, so I started coaching and running the gym and he's, you know, and he was like, you know, I'm finally going to get back into it. But he's like, the other three guys are no longer involved. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the problem with that gym. It's just like, and I, as we said, all early gyms, but, um, I was not, I was not concerned for my job or anything when they were going to hire the gym. Cause my track record shows for itself. Mm. I have, you know, I'm not one, I'm not one to brag about myself a lot. I just, I like to just, you know, fly underneath the radar and post when I need to and yeah. stay down when I don't need to or stay down when I need it, when I can. But um, I have grown as far as recreational in any level of program, whether it be kids, uh, like little kids programs, intermediate uh, recreational climbing and recreational competitive. I have grown the largest team in DFW and I've grown the, the fastest consistently. Mm. Um, and that's because I take a job seriously. It's a career of mine. And so I've always had a good contract, consistent track record. And I'll never forget my boss walked up to me and shook my hand. He was like, I don't know how you did it, but you were literally running your little kids program, your youth program with 60, no, I had 80 kids in that program alone. Wow. And like my youngest, youngest program. And to me, you know, anybody who's getting into coaching, um, your little program is the most important program in the whole gym. Like you can talk about rec team, team Texas, all you want to, but those programs are irrelevant if you don't have a program that's catered for kids from the ages of six, really five, all the way up to eight or nine. Like that's fundamentally the most important program. And why, why is that the most important? I mean, you gotta have legacy. I mean, like, I mean, think about it this way. How much does a gym membership cost? Just ballpark. I, I actually have zero clue. What? <laughs> I haven't bought a gym membership since 1997. Oh, you lucky dog. <laughs> uh, okay, so, you know, let's just say for the sake of conversation, because and we're going to X out New York, LA, uh, Chicago, any sure. place that's like uberly expensive. Um, an average gym, gym membership is going to cost you somewhere between the ballpark of, on the low end of the spectrum, probably 60 bucks a month. On the high end of the spectrum, let's just say $100 flat. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's the basic gym membership, okay? 
now you have a youth program membership. Depending on your youth programs, it can be as anywhere as low as 40 bucks a month of what I've seen, all the way up to 125, $200 a month, which, and this is for recreational programs too, which in my opinion, I mean, you're, you're, that's a little steep, uh, but okay. So you have that now let's take in basic gear, shoes, harness, all that stuff for a kid package. We're going to say a hundred bucks. Kids little harness shoes are cheap. All right. So now that we've got all that done, so we have our initial investment so far and most gyms, if you're on the youth team, they give you a discount on your membership. So let's just, let's say we're going to add in on the high end of the spectrum. So we're going to say that hundred dollar membership is just cut to 50 bucks. And we're going to say the kids membership is another 50 bucks. So it's a hundred bucks a month that the gym is charging that parent and that family. And that's, let's say one kid. Okay. On average, it's usually more Then you've just made, you know, an additional hundred dollars on that kid's gear. Now that kid is six years old. My goal is to get him to graduate out of his program. I have gone to more high school graduations in the last few years. Uh, and mm-hmm. I am hoping to get to, to go to a couple gra- college graduations and I know people who are getting ready to have families. Yeah. The entire lifetime of that kid per month, per gear, per everything coming to the gym, an average gym, if they, if people would think about this, you will probably make close to almost a quarter of a million dollars off of that kid and that family through the entire lifespan from the age of like five all the way to 18. You know, and it doesn't seem like a lot, you know, and like, you know, $250,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but when you have like, you know, 60, 70 kids, you know, 120 kids running through these programs and graduating out of it, well, now you have a sustainable business. And I think that from a business perspective, that's why people, I think gyms, most other gyms, when it comes to youth programs, utterly terribly fail because you know, not naming names, but anytime I travel, my first thing I like to do is go to a gym. And the very first thing I do is I interview, I usually like quote unquote, like get my day pass. I interview the employees, ask about their youth program. And then I ask to talk to the coach and mm-hmm. you know, I'll straight up lie. I'm like, yeah, I got a kid. I'm thinking about putting him in the program. I'm thinking about moving here. And I just like to hear what they say. And, I, and it, it just, it, it just, it's really remarkable how many people are so nonchalant about their program and they're the head coach. Right. And they're like, yeah, you can kind of do this. And we kind of have this program. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, my boss said this to me, you know, a couple times and it took me a while to get it, but like, you're leaving money on the table. And I just don't think people realize, like, if I get 40 kids psyched on rock climbing and I keep them psyched for the next five years, that is a guaranteeing me bare minimum 40 kids at the map we just did. And let's say, you know, you're making a percentage and whatever your a good wage is. I mean, those 40 kids are at least guaranteeing you to have a good climbing trip every year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and, and just providing you with a, a life, really. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, and honestly, I see in a lot of gyms the most attention paid to the, you know, the older, strong kids. Oh, yeah. Um, and maybe that's a... You know they they should get paid some attention, but maybe maybe that's a mistake that it is. Coaches are spending too much time paying attention to the older kids. It, it is. I mean, I think it's a fundamental flaw because, like, you know, I mean, for example, you know how to ride a bicycle. Do I really need to teach you how to ride your bike better? No, you're gonna figure that out on your own. Kids at a certain point, kids will coach themselves and teach themselves. 
because they want a project. They want to get on the hard routes. They want to work those things. So, and I'm not saying you don't need to have coachable moments and those like moments and they don't need structure and they don't need good planning. Yeah. There have to be nudges in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. So let's, 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 let's throw that in the pot. Like you're actually coaching your children, you know, you're doing the work, but do you really need to stay on top of a 15 or 14 year old kid? That's, you know, you, you've got to kick out of the gym, right? No, what you do need to do is make rock climbing fun, obnoxiously stupid, silly to the point where you don't even take yourself seriously fun for kids from the age of five all the way up to like nine or 10. Because this is the thing that I learned this year because we have been launching a couple programs and talking to parents and um, I've been trying to grow one of our little rockers program, which obviously COVID made it super hard. Uh, but, um, that is for kids at the age of like three to five, you mm-hmm. know, and what I've learned from the, from the dealing with these kids a lot is rock climbing is not cool to those kids. It's fun. It needs to be silly. Right. Right. Uh, rock climbing isn't cool until you're like 10 and you're able to just start like Googling what you want. And so, uh, kind of going back to like, why is it so important? It's because those kids need to be consistently inspired and consistently motivated that rock climbing is fun and it's something they want to do. And you're making these little nudges and showing that internal competition, complex, you know, um, comprehensive thinking about like what's going on and having uncomfortable conversations with, you know, a seven year old or a six year old, like, explaining to them, it's okay that you feel scared. You're supposed to. Now you might not understand why you feel scared. And they're like, yes, I do. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, let's have this conversation. And nine times out of 10, they're utterly wrong, but they still have the emotional complexity to understand how they feel. And your job as a coach is to validate that feeling, but then understand, but immediately tell them now that we have validated this feeling, this feeling is, let's just say it's kindled for the fire. Like you need to throw it in here and operate off of this thing and learn how to use this to your advantage to continue to have fun on the wall. Mm-hmm. And it turns to competition on their own accord or they don't want anything to do with it. And you're, is this program part of the sort of feeder system mm-hmm. into Team Texas? Yes, yes, it is. So once a kid is, I don't know, I don't know what time they become aware of the like the the legend of Team Texas, but I'm sure you get kids who are oh, I get up all the time seven eight years old starting Older. to really think about I want to be on this team, you mm-hmm. know, I want to I want to wear this uniform, and I, mm-hmm. how do you how do you cultivate that and keep the fun? How does it not become too much about I have to make the team, I have to be a competitive climber? So I think this goes back to, you know, understanding that if you are a career coach or you are an hourly coach. So, uh, so I think if in, okay, so I don't remember exactly where this phrase comes from. And I feel like my grandmother said it to me or my dad did Jamaican family, but a fish rots from the head. Hmm. So you as a coach, you must be having real consistent talk, real talk conversation with your kids consistently. Because if you have a kid by the age of, because by 10 is, is, 
like if they're going to compete, they need to start like being on a competitive team at the age of 10, like gotcha. any later than that, like they gotta be a prodigy. And I know that sounds real jacked up, but gymnastics is the same way for sure. And yeah. so with that being said, um, I think if you as a coach are not having consistent real talks with those kids as they're growing up and by the time they get nine or 10 years old and they start expressing that they want to be on team Texas, and now you're trying to have a real talk and now you're trying to have emotional conversations with this kid and lead them through what the emotional expectation is. Like you might not make the team. You might make round two of tryouts. You might make it all the way to round three of that. Or, you know, or I tell the kids, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, I think you're strong enough to climb on the team, but, but your attitude sucks. And let's mm -hmm. just like, have a conversation. And I do, mm -hmm. I do tell a 10 year old or an eight year old, I'm like, your attitude sucks. Exactly sure. like that. And they look at me like, and I'm like, so let's explain, let's unpack what I mean. You're rude to your teammates. You're a bully. You do these things. These are the examples that I'm talking about. Has coach so-and-so told you to stop doing this? Yes. How many dudes, does this coach have to tell you this every week? Yeah. And then you see their voice get a little smaller. Yes. Yes. No, I'm not, I'm not, you can go to tryouts, but I'm not going to vouch for you. Mm. I'm not going to give you my own vouch. And if you make it on your own accord, great. But know that like, it's going to be real hard if you don't like, you know, if you don't like working until the point where you're uncomfortable, if you don't, you know, if you want to do the boulder right, then you're never going to do it right. You have to understand that like no one on team does it right. Everyone just does it to the best of their ability and everyone else on team when you get there is going to look like they're doing it right, but they're right. all on the same point. Yeah. And I think so. Yeah. So that's like the thing. And I think in order to get a kid ready for that, you as a coach have to be in a mindset of like. I am trying to build a good human being and I'm trying to have consistent conversations with these kids. So I don't have to figure out how to backpedal or just, you know, just, I don't know. It's just, it's a terrible feeling. I guess that's one of the ways I look at it too. Like now thinking about it, I just don't ever want to be in a situation where I can't have an honest conversation with one of my kids. Yeah. Like that's just like, it, it kind of like, it's almost chagrinning to me. Like it's very terrifying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just don't want to be in that situation. And I think as a good coach, like you have to be able to have those conversations with your kids. Yeah. What are the top things you look for in, in that athlete who you're going to send to the team tryouts and mm -hmm. you're going to vouch for them? What, um, what do those kids have that makes it so that you're excited to go to Kyle or whoever's running the team mm -hmm. and saying, this kid's amazing. Yeah, Even if they're not the best athlete on team, they're a real asset to the yeah. team. So the person I report to is Marissa. She was actually a team kid and she's actually uh, runs the team with Kyle now. What's Marissa's last name? Uh, Romero. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. definitely emceed comps that she was in. Yeah. For so, sure. Yeah. Uh, shout out to both of you too. I know you're on, on long trip with the kids, so have fun. Um, uh, so the first thing for me is attitude. Like, I, I don't want to have to apologize to the head coaches of why this kid is a turd. Like all kids are turds to a certain extent, but like, you know, there are kids who are just like, they, they're just not good team players mm -hmm. or there's a maturity level there or it's things like that. So like attitude is the very first thing. Like you got to want to be here. And I'm not saying, you know, you got to be the most politest kid in the entire world, but you've got to just show that you want to be there. Yeah. And I think that's the very first thing because if not, they'll crack under the pressure. Second thing that I look for is, and this is kind of like, as your book is so appropriately named, The Hard Truth, 
Um, if you are, and this is not always true, but if you are, I would say between the ages of seven to 10 and you are not, and I understand these are adult boulders, but if you are not consistently projecting or putting down before and below and above, then I mean, in my opinion, you're going to get your butt kicked because these boulders are hard. Cause what, let's say what the 11 to 13 category when they're at their comps, their hardest rope route is like, I don't want to like, I want to say like 12 B 12 C. Yeah. And then, so the kids in the 14 and up, I mean, their hardest, I think their hardest category at the top is like 13 C. I'm sure. I mean, we've seen 14 year olds climb a lot of five fourteens at this point. So. Yeah. So, I mean, like, 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 you know, so that's the first thing. So like being real and just like, listen, am I saying you gotta be crushing 12s? No. Am I saying you gotta be bouldering, you know, V9, V10 in our gym, that's pink and black boulders, um, you know, or purple and pink and black routes. Like, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is like, you need to be proficient enough at your rock climbing. And if you have to ask someone else, if you're proficient enough at your rock climbing, then that's probably the first sign as an athlete. Like if an athlete has to ask if they're good enough to do it, then that's the first sign of them being aware of their climbing. And that's a good sign. Now I have to actually answer the question. And mm. in my opinion, you know, you know, if you're not putting down like V4, V5 consistently, or at least be able to work the moves, more importantly, work the moves on those things at that age, then that's it. You know, I, th I think it's just kind of hard. And yeah, most kids just don't, I don't, I don't know. I think once it gets hard, they kind of shut down. So those are the things. And that grading system is probably really subjective. Sure. Like, you know, so I'm not going to say like those are the corners. As soon as you thing. bring grades into the conversation, it's automatically extremely subjective. Yeah. So like <laughs> knowing that there, cause I've, I've mm -hmm. met a nine year old that is, I swear to God, it was almost as tall as me. And so, mm -hmm. uh, but so you have attitude, you have overall climbing ability. Uh, and then the last thing that I really look for, I guess it isn't like one last thing, but I look for the ability to ask questions and the ability mm. to not just say yes. Um, I personally, you know, and I think this is just me being an East Coaster. I like it when kids challenge my authority. Yeah, I love it when they're just like, I don't think the boulder can go that way. I'm like, oh, well, why don't you tell me how the boulder can go? And then they'll tell me. And like, I got one kid, Sparky, great kids, not a real name, but all my kids have nicknames. So yeah. we got like, but Sparky will be very quick to tell me very quickly. She's like, well, I think it goes like this. And I'm like, all right, show me. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But the fact of the matter that they will have that level of conversation with me is something that's good because that means whether that kid cracks under the pressure when they're in a competition or not, that means I at least have the ability to talk them off of a cliff. And I think that's where real coaching begins. You know, some people just crack under under pressure. Some people, they just need to know that you're in your corner and then they'll do fine. Uh, and so those are really the big three things that I look for. And then if a kid exit, it shows those three things, then I will generally say, I'm like, hey, I think you should try out for team. Like we want all of our kids to try out for team. And I know that seems really counterintuitive, but I mean, there are sleepers, there are outliers everywhere. And sure. I have... 
I have definitely watched some of my kids try out. And then at tryouts, I'm like, who is this and where has this person been? Yeah. And frankly, it's, you know, even the best scouts in the biggest sports with the most money have a hard time <laughs> looking at a person in practice and knowing how they're going to perform on the field. It yeah. oftentimes goes one direction or the other in an extreme that nobody expected. Mm-hmm. You know, so having them try out, I think is kind of a brilliant idea. It, even if they don't make it as, you know, morose as this may sound, it's, I think it's good for people to try out for things. That's not a sure thing for them. Everyone needs to lose. Yeah. Everyone needs to steal the, like everyone needs to feel the sting and the pain of being a loser. And I, and I know no parent wants their child to be a loser but you're looking at the loser in the sense of what you think MTV has taught us losers are. Right. But losers are actually the real winners in life. People who, you know, it's, it's biblical, you know, Proverbs, like get back, get beaten down, get back up. I mean, it, it's beyond that. It's common sense. And I think that most, it's like, like I openly hate participation ribbons oh, and everyone, too, everyone, I'm, everyone knows I hate them. Oh, and bane of my existence. God. Like, you know, and, I, and and I'll get it for like, I'll also say this for like kids 10 and under participation ribbons are definitely a good thing because they at least got something for showing up and they mm-hmm. feel like they were a part of the team. That's different. You know, it, it, and like, that's why I say under 10 and under, I'll let it slide. But anybody above nah, man, you need to feel, you just got to feel the burn. And I don't know. I think most parents shelter their kids from losing in most things. Oh, I think that's totally true. And I think we see a lot of a lot of kids become adults who bail at the first sign of struggle or loss and don't continue on, mm-hmm. you know, through those struggles into something that could be incredibly beautiful. Instead they just bail because their parents just want them wanted them to be in things they were good at and you know, losing is scary for a lot of parents. But losing, oh man, losing, I think when you lose, like I'll, I can think of every track and field meet that I ever lost against a kid that I know I should have won. And like the thoughts in the ride home, and my dad was awesome. My parents, like my dad was definitely that side dad who would be like screaming and yelling. You'd think he was so angry. He'd be like, <laughs> get the ball. Ah, ah. And then I'd come up to my dad and I was like, dad, how'd I do? And he's like, you did great. Let's go get some ice cream. Yeah. You know? And so he was super good about that. And my dad was also very, very good about letting me sit in the car when I just needed to kind of have a quiet moment and mm. reflect. And every time I lost, those car rides and I never lived that far from my middle school or high school. Uh, I mean, well, I guess if you can consider traffic in Northern, Northern Virginia is terrible, but um, those car rides seem so, so short mm. going home because I would be so lost in thought of like, man, I could have started off the blocks better. Maybe if I would have moved my block from, you know, from one, I should have moved it from three to nine instead of three to eight. Like, I mean, you know, and you like, you think about these things as kids, right? but you only have these conversations if you fail and like, you know, and controlled failure is not failure. I do want to make a actually very good point of that. And I like, I'm, I'm kind of like beeline into something else here, but this is, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. And I'm every coach who's a youth coach will probably thank me for this. Or if you, 
if you're listening to this, this is definitely for you. But like controlled failure is not the same as utterly failing. And there are a lot of parents or family people out there who want to mitigate of how the failure process is going to happen. Mm, and I've definitely it. had parents tell me, they're like, well, Mario, you get more with sugar than you do with shit. And I'm like, shit makes shit grow, fool. So like yeah. move along. Uh, and th that's just like me getting on a rant and without like, uh, the best example I can give of that is I had a parent who I was definitely being a little hard on their kid, but their kid showed a tremendous amount of promise you could just tell that he was like wrestling with this thought of like, do I kind of like rage? And I want to say he was like eight or nine years old. And I just remember having these conversations and the mom came up to me after practice one day and she was like, you know, I really, I really like you to back off of so-and-so. And I'm like, well, why? And they're like, you know, well, they just talk about like, you know, you're putting a lot of pressure on them and you know, you're really kind of like having these conversations like, and they feel like they're failing you. And I'm like, well, that's, that's like, that's not true. I told, I, I we have a conversation every day. Like, you know, do, who, who do I care about the most? And they know it's them. And I'm like, I care about your feelings and I want you to try. And they know, I don't care if you fail. I can't, I was like, you make me more proud if you right. fail on a boulder. Yeah. And she was like, well, I feel like it's a lot of pressure. And I wanted to be like, what you feel is not what your kid feels. So you need to get out of your kid's head and stop trying to control that conversation that's going on to him because you are robbing him of the ability to critically think and analyze his own emotions. And most importantly, and I wish I could have said this to this mother, I was like, you are getting in the way of your child being able to learn how to speak up for themselves. Mm. And it just like, it infuriates me. And yeah. I have to kind of like really, really, really reel myself back sometimes because I've definitely had parents who just like, you know, ultimately it's your kid, it, it, it is your kid. But if you were paying me to be their coach and you were paying me to see the best that's in your kid, then you need to let me be the coach and you need to unconditionally love your kid and get out of the way. Yeah. Parents are the sole reason I never wanted to be a youth coach. Because I just don't want to deal with parents at all. You got to find the rad ones, like my drinking buddies. They're great. So mm -hmm. I, I I'm sure them. they're out there. Oh, yeah, they're great. great. I just didn't like, want to deal with them. AKA greatest <laughs> team parent ever, Meredith Steele. You're amazing. <laughs> Her family is great. So they are definitely my buddies. So, um, but uh, yeah, you know, so without getting on that tangent, you know, youth coaching is the future of the climbing sport. And I selfishly teach kids to climb because I want to make great human beings. I want them to be great rock climbers, but I also want them to care about the things that I care about in the future. Mm -hmm. And, I don't want to tell them what to believe. I just want to show them my reality. I don't want to show them the things that love make me excited. And I think going back to your point of like how Team Texas um, takes these kids on outdoor rock climbing trips, the cool, coolest thing about rock climbing is going rock climbing, going on a trip, bonding with people, spending these time road trips. Like that is it. And I want to provide that experience at, at on a more simple, smaller level for kids because I do with my guiding company I do local, a lot of local day trips uh, and then we've done a couple weekend overnight trips but for the most part that's really what we do and I try to provide that experience for the kids in one day and it's it's always so funny they're all on their iPods and just like and it's early in the morning but they're sleepy and a few of them are talking that are friends and by the end of every climbing trip or bouldering trip I cannot get them to shut up in the car right, right. And for like 45 minutes and then they're all asleep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the coolest things because it's not, 
you know, rock climbing as a team sport is not like baseball or football no. where no. where you're you're all as a unit competing against other units you're also competing against each other mm-hmm. pretty often you yeah. know and and that adds this dynamic that i think is a little tougher to understand mm-hmm. I think they're also competing against themselves, which we always know this too. Yeah. But um, I think you're right like that, but that allows them to get such good camaraderie. Like I had a mom who came in from competitive swimming and healthy competition. Yes. So this actually nails the head. So mom came, her daughter came from competitive swimming to my team. And then after a practice, she walked up to me pretty emotional, not in tears, but she was like, she was like, why is the other team rooting for my mm. kid and the kids on your team to win this boulder. Mm. Like why are the, like they're on the wrong team. Like they shouldn't be rooting for this kid. <laughs> and I was like, that's not how rock climbing works. Yeah. And I told her, I was like, you have to understand. I was like, every kid, none of these kids are thinking about what team they are on. They are looking at them and they are thinking, Oh my God, this is how I felt on the third, third hold. Oh, now they're grabbing the match sloper. Oh, they're messing with it. God, I know how that feels. Yeah. And like you immediately emphasize with them. You like, like it's like, I always like use, Einstein, I completely destroy Einstein's theory of rel- relativity, but I was like, it's all relative. Whether you're climbing V5 or V14, like the struggle, the emotional, emotional anguish, like all the mental feelings that you're feeling are the same. Totally. And every kid, it is very real for them when they're rooting on these kids and they're rooting on them. Cause they're all like, I want you to, I, they, they want to win, but they want to see you send because if it's possible for you, then it's possible for them. Yeah. And that's why, and the kids know that, like we don't have to tell them that. Yeah. That that's definitely something I've always appreciated about how the indoor climbing community Mm-hmm. operates in a similar way that the outdoor community does you know mm-hmm. yes we all want to be the first or we all want to win or whatever but it's it's a it's a fine line you have to balance across when you want to win but you're also really psyched for your friend mm-hmm. who's climbing their best that day oh, and yeah. and might beat you yeah you know that's I- I, I love it though, because like I've never seen any of our kids take it personally. They all like, if someone beats them, like some of them will be a little stinged about it, but almost all of them come up, give each other hugs. And then mm-hmm. they're too, they're too busy talking about like what just happened that day. Yeah. And so I'm really lucky to see that. And I think that's honestly from a competitive reason that that's why I've stuck with the sport because this is like rock climbing is unlike any other sport I've ever come across in my life. And I played Football, a little bit of basketball, I was terrible at it. Uh, wrestling I did for a while, uh, but my main sport was track and field. And I think like track and field is the closest that you come to that. But everyone is so loud cheering for you. You don't know who's cheering for who when you're running across that finish line. You're just trying to get across it. You were talking about blocks. Were you a sprinter? Uh, so I ran open eight, open four, 300 meter hurdles. So I was an intermediate sprinter. Mm-hmm. And my coach would make us start on blocks for the three and the four. And then we had the option to start on blocks for the eight. For the eight Never right. did, but um, but yes. So those were my main events. Yeah, cool. Tracks, track was a similar way, you know. For me, I was a pole vaulter in high school. And, and my pole vault partner, Tellus, and I always 
were battling for who was going to win the meet, you know? So fun. And, and I just have such good memories of, of that healthy competition, you know, never knowing I could be on today or, or Telus could be on fire today. And if, and if he's on fire, I'm losing period, you know, (laughs) but, but it was fun to go in and see and push each other. And, and, you know, if he was having a bad day, I'd do my best to light his fire and try to try to get him going. But like, how cool is that memory? Like really, like yeah. how cool is that? Because I think other people look in other sports to just think about the people who beat them. Or they think about the people that they were neck and neck with and they're like, oh yeah, this guy, this fool. But in like track, definitely, uh, rock climbing, definitely. Like how cool is it? Like the person who wins, you're probably buddies with that person and you're gonna be climbing the same route at the crag or you're gonna show up to the gym and be working the same project. And or, and or back on that same climb if it's indoors from a comp. Like, it's just, it's the coolest thing in the world that you can just, like, lose with such grace. But your friendship has honestly been amplified because of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just don't see it anywhere else. Yeah, it's, you know, losing with grace, I think, is this this thing that we we misunderstand in a lot of ways. You know, it's, that when you say it to me, I don't get a picture of, of a kid just like totally accepting the loss and being like, oh yeah, that was fine. Because I know there were a lot of emotions tied up in it and mm-hmm. it takes a few minutes, you know, mm-hmm. for that to sink in, sometimes longer than a few minutes. But what really counts is that they come back to practice the next yeah. the next session and, you know, congratulate and high five the the person who beat them or or just accept that okay it's time time to get back to work you know yeah. whatever that is i just listened to this amazing sports wars series on the williams sisters and you know listening to serena's battles with with losing to venus for years and years and then even after serena was the more dominant player she would still lose to Venus on occasion and, and it would tear her up, you know, that's but funny. ultimately they're like, we're sisters and that's, you know, you might be my, my greatest competitor, but you're also my best friend. So, yeah, that's rad. I, I think, I think climbing does that. So yeah. that's yeah, awesome. I think so. If you had to pick one quality that you think is the most important for a kid to come up through your feeder system into this storied program of Team Texas, what would that quality be? You named several already. Is it one of those? Is it something different? What's what's the thing that makes a kid most successful? I'm not even a big fan of the word successful, but... I know this is like a big catchword. Uh, it was a big buzzword in schools and educations in the last like two, three years. I think it's kind of dying down now, but grit, mm. like that's it. Like you, I mean, you just have to have like, I'm talking like chunky sandpaper, chunky sand in your mouth, grinding your teeth, grit, and knowing that like you're just willing to push through. But grit with intelligence. And I think that's like, no, grit with patience. That's mm. basically it because you've got to be able to bear down, but you've also got to have enough patience to be able to just like step back and just be like, okay, I need to learn from this situation. 
But with most things, I think a lot of kids, and maybe it's just the way they're structured and set up their homes are. I mean, but I think a lot of kids, like they'll lose a couple of times. And instead of losing, instead of seeing this loss as an opportunity to learn, be like, you know, when you, when you fall off the boulder, the next question should be, what did you learn? And, but with most kids, when they fall off the boulder, they're like, ah, I freaking suck. Yeah. You know, and even though it's so dismissive, it's like, you know, I, I have one of my kids, Austin, who's actually been doing really, really well. Uh, How many Austin. kids in Texas are named after cities in Texas? Oh my God, I don't even know. I've met, I've coached kids named Dallas. Austin. It's similar in Wyoming. I, There's yeah. all sorts of Cody's. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't oh, know. I'm sure you could Google this and we would both be surprised. <laughs> uh, but Austin, I mean, like in the last year and a half, every time he comes off a boulder, I'm like, Austin, he was like, yeah, man, like I, I just, I, I didn't put all four fingers on it. And I just like, I, I realized it right when I brought my foot up and then I didn't really want to finish the move anyway, but like, I just tried it and like, I think I can do it next time. And I'm like, thanks for doing my job. Yeah. You know? Yep. And like, that's where you're trying to get to. And I think you have to have a certain amount of grit to push yourself through what you think is going to be really sucky because like I, like you and I both know this, but like rock climbing is a tremendous amount of failure for one moment of success. Yeah. And, um, it's just, you have to have grit in order to actually follow through with that because no kid believes it. No matter how many times I say that statement until I'm blue in the face, none of them to believe it. And I don't need them to believe it. I just need them to stick with the plan. And I yeah. think if they'll do that, they will see the fruits of their labor. Yeah. One of the one of the key components that Angela Duckworth in her book called Grit, I think that's the title of it, um, talks about. And, and I did a, an episode on this with my friend Emily Tilden, who's an incredible athlete. Uh, we talked about grit. And one of the things that matters most for how much grit does this person have is how much they care about the thing they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, just by answering grit, you've already narrowed it down to the kids who really care. And like you said, want to be here. And yeah. I mean, yeah, so. you have to want to be there or, I've definitely told kids like you need to lie to yourself and tell yourself you deserve to be here. Yeah. And then eventually you'll believe it. And you know, you say that to an 11 year old. And even like, it, I mean, it's not necessarily a lie. Even they may, they may feel like it's a lie, but yeah, they do, but, but they do they deserve to be there. Yeah. What they don't realize is like, it seems like a lie, but it's actually the truth of the matter. And I don't know. I, I think we also need to learn how to reward kids and adults too. We're just having the conversation. Like if they, if you get mm -hmm. to that, if you get that far to the point where you have to actually tell a kid or an adult, like, I need, hey, listen, I need you to just lie to yourself and like tell you, tell yourself that like you're having the greatest day in the world, so you can send this boulder and we can move on. And I think to a certain extent, like that is a skill set or that is a thing that like you have to have people do, and that is grit. And I don't know, I just, I, I just don't think people personally unpack that word enough for themselves. To put it into perspective and then they also need to understand that they're going to unpack that word every six to 12 months yeah it's going to constantly change yeah well cool i i appreciate you sitting down talking about talking about this subject you know more and more the climbing world is 
growing or at least pre-covid it was and hopefully it continues to do so and there are just more and more kids joining teams and that's you know that's gonna necessitate more and more coaches yeah and and i just i want to be someone who makes sure that the the thing all the coaches are focused on isn't just am i getting you know am i having them hangboard with the right weight and is it am i is my programming perfect it's more about we're building these humans and Mm -hmm. giving them the qualities and the traits that they can carry forward to become good athletes good people yeah absolutely i mean that's the most important part like i mean because at some point you're not going to be a part of this journey and your whole goal is to set them up that they can send on their own yep that's it Awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate this. Anytime. Much like we have always believed here at Power Company Climbing, we're building better humans, not just stronger rock climbers. And I'm, I'm happy to know that there are youth coaches out there, coaches out there like Mario, who also follow this same idea and who know that the lessons they're giving to the people they're coaching are what are going to help them become better humans in the future. You can learn more about Mario at mariostanley.com. You can find his podcast there, Sins and Suffers. You can also find his guiding services. Definitely reach out to Mario. Um, He's an important voice in this community, and you're going to be hearing more from him here at the podcast. If you have not listened to episode 177 with Mario and his friend Dinell Hunter, it'll give you a really amazing view of Mario's mentorship. And it's maybe my favorite episode I've ever recorded. It's certainly the the conversation that I felt most privileged to be able to sit and witness. So check that out, episode 177. Also on Mario's podcast, Sins and Suffers, today, same day this is coming out, Mario has an interview with myself. So if you haven't heard me ramble on enough about coaching, you can go over to Sins and Suffers and listen to that conversation as well. In the meantime, you can find us at powercompanyclimbing.com. Like I said in the intro, check out the crag kits and the boulder bags in stock and shipping now. You can also find us on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, at Power Company Climbing. And you can search for us on Twitter. You'll find people talking about us because that's what they do. But you're not going to find us because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. This time, 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 this time